Great to see you, Purpose Church. So good to be together uh, here online. Uh, before I start, Kimberly and I just want to thank you so much uh, for last Sunday's celebration of our 30th year here at Purpose Church and uh, also for your financial gift that came along with that. Um, last Sunday, I did a very rough paraphrase of Hebrews 13, 17, where it says, uh, in my rough par paraphrase, you'll be blessed if you make it fun for your pastor to be your pastor. You, you'll be blessed if you make it fun for your pastor to be your pastor. And I said, no one does a better job of obeying that verse than you. Well, here's an actual paraphrase of Hebrews 13, verse 17 from the message. It says, be responsive to your pastoral leaders. Listen to their counsel. They are alert to the condition of your lives and work under the strict supervision of God. Contribute to the joy of their leadership, not its drudgery. Why would you want to make things harder for them? And nobody obeys that verse uh, like, like you. And I'm so grateful for you and love you so very much. And I also want to again thank Kimberly for 40 years of, of marriage and also 40 years as a pastor's wife and all the things we were mentioned last Sunday, my 67th birthday, my uh, 30th year here, our 40 years as husband and wife. But one that I forgot to mention was 40 years as a pastor's wife uh, for Kimberly. And last Sunday, I said that pastors have a saying that how successful you are early in your ministry has mainly to do with your giftedness, with your talents. But how you, well you do later in your later ministry years has to do with how, who you married. How successful you are in those later years has more to do with who you married and God gave me the best. It, as a matter of fact, it kind of reminds me of a story. Uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton pulled into a gas station. I, I know it's a little unrealistic, but just stick with me here, okay? Uh, go along with it. Uh, Bill and Hillary uh, Clinton pull into a gas station, and uh, they're down in Arkansas, and a, a guy comes out and starts pumping gas into their car. And Hillary recognizes him and gets out of the car, chats with him for a little bit, gets back in after the gas is pumped. And Bill turns to her and says, well, who was that anyway? She goes, oh, that was an old high school boyfriend. And he, Bill Clinton, gets very pompous and arrogant, and he goes, well, I, I guess you're glad you married me, the President of the United States, instead of a guy pumping gas for us. And, and she looked at him and she said, Bill, if I had married him, he would have been president of the United States. <laughs> so I would say the same thing about Kimberly as well. Now today we're continuing our 2023 series, which we're studying the 66 books of the Bible in 52 weeks. The title of our series is Jesus on Every Page. Now our series within a series is the letters that changed history. The letters that changed history. And I just love that title so much. I didn't come up with it, by the way. I'm terrible at titles. I would have come up with something boring like the books of the New Testament or you know something that didn't have a little pizzazz to it. But our creative team came up with it and I love it. The, the letters that changed history. 
And the reason I love it so much is that even if someone is an atheist, you would have to admit that the letters of Paul and Peter and John and others to the early churches literally changed the course of human history more than any other documents ever in world history. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you also believe that these letters changed the eternal destination for literally billions of people. Now, the last uh, two weeks, I believe we've had two of the best sermons that I've ever heard in my life. A first couple of weeks ago, Pastor Eric preached on Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, and the subject was sexuality. Then last Sunday, Pastor Chris Brown uh, preached on Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and the subject was on unity. So Corinth and unity and, and Rome and sexuality. And they were just phenomenal messages. Now, for those of you that read ahead, we're going to be switching, after today, we're going to be switching Philippians and Ephesians. The first and only time we're doing that within the series to reverse the order. So next Sunday we'll do uh, Philippians and then we'll do Ephesians. Uh, Philippians next Sunday, Ephesians two weeks from today. So I just kind of wanted to give you a warning and heads up for people like my wife, Kimberly, who that will drive her crazy to do the books out of order. So I just want to give heads up for anybody that that is uh, stressful for you. Uh, so today, Galatians, next Sunday, Philippians, then the Sunday after that, Ephesians, and then we'll be back in the right order for the remainder of the year. Now today we come to Galatians. Jesus, our justification by faith. And, the, and first of all, let's look at the background for the book of Galatians. It takes 20 minutes to read it. And I would really encourage you this week to just, if you could find 20 minutes sometime this, re, this week, just sit down and read it like you would read a letter. Nobody reads a letter, you know, if it has six pages to it. Nobody reads one page and then waits a day or two and then reads a second page and waits a day or two. Third page, when you read a letter, you, you read it from beginning to end and usually in one sitting. And I would encourage you, if you get a chance to take 20 minutes to read Galatians, the letter to the Galatians from beginning to end. Now, the content of the letter is a church fight, a church fight. Uh, I loved what Chris said last Sunday, that the reason that we have, they even have the New Testament letters, is because Paul planted such bad churches. <laughs> they were so messed up. They were so bad that the New Testament letters are mainly just to write to them to kind of fix things that had gone wrong. Uh, like First and Second Corinthians, last Sunday, uh, Paul writes, you know, basically, he says to them, as Chris said last Sunday, I didn't think I needed to tell you to not sleep with your stepmom. I, I, I thought that was like assumed. Uh, so I'll say it here in this letter because uh, evidently I failed to mention that uh, when I was there. Well, here's the content of Galatians. A heated argument with the Gentile, that is non-Jewish Galatian believers, against some Jewish Christian, quote, missionaries, they're false missionaries, uh, false teachers, who insist that Gentiles be circumcised, that is, they have to become Jewish before they can become Christian. 
So insist that they be circumcised if they're to be included in the people of God. Uh, the author is the Apostle uh, Paul. Uh, he, it was written, the date is probably around uh, 55 A.D., although some think it could have been written as early as 47 or 48 A.D. Now, that would make it uh, the earliest letter uh, of all the letters written. That would make it only 15 years after Jesus' resurrection. It would also make it the earliest book written along with 1 Thessalonians that I'm going to teach on uh, in, on the first Sunday in November. I'll be teaching on 1st, uh, 2nd Thessalonians. But if it's, if it's this date, then it would be second behind 1st Thessalonians. But if it's this date, it would probably have been a couple of years before 1st Thessalonians and thus uh, the, the first book written in the New Testament. Uh, the main theme of 1st Thessalonians is the second coming of Jesus. So if you take the two of them together, Galatians and 1 Thessalonians, uh, it tells us that the first problem the early church faced was the question that we're dealing with here in Galatians, do Gentiles have to become Jews first in order to follow Jesus? And 1 Thessalonians, the big hope of the early church was the second coming of Jesus. So their big hope was Jesus coming back. Their big problem was this whole issue of do you have to become Jewish first before you become Christian, if you're non-Jewish. Uh, the recipients of the letter were Gentile believers in Galatia. And here's a map of Galatia. Um, Galatia uh, was in modern-day Turkey, so this is modern-day uh, Turkey. And uh, sometimes a letter would be written to just one church in a large city, like Rome two weeks ago, and like Corinth last Sunday. But sometimes it would be sent to Christians in a region, and this is the Roman province of Galatia. So it'd be sent to Christians in a, re a region, and they would pass it along from church to church to read it aloud at their worship service. Now the occasion, the reason for it being written, is the churches of Galatia have been invaded by some agitators who have questioned Paul's gospel and his apostleship. Apparently, some Galatians are on the verge of capitulating to them, which sparks a vigorous defense by Paul of his gospel and of his, his calling. Now, uh, uh, we would uh, say in this today, why in the world would anyone uh, question Paul being an apostle? That just seems uh, ludicrous to us. Uh, he had seen the resurrected Jesus like the other apostles, but he was not part of the original 12 disciples. And so maybe that is what his enemies were now using against him. And then the emphasis, uh, Paul's apostleship and gospel come directly from God and Christ, not through human mediation. The death of Jesus has brought an end to ethnic religious observances. The Spirit produces the righteousness the law could not. The Spirit enables believers not to yield to sinful desires. One receives the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, now, let's dig into what we're talking about here today in this study. Seven reasons to study the book of Galatians. Reason number one, it is a bold assault on legalism. That is, obeying a certain laws in order to uh, do a certain list of do's, avoid a list of don'ts, in order to earn your way, earn your salvation, uh, living by works. If you do enough good things and avoid enough bad things, 
That's what earns you a place in heaven. Legalism, it is a bold assault on legalism based on works. Now, freedom in Christ was a scary thing for those who were used to the legalism of the Jewish faith, and it is a scary thing for us today. Uh, you know, there's just something that feels safer with a defined set of, of rules that we obey rather than uh, the rule of love in our hearts that then lives out that in response to what Christ has done for us. And, and that kind of freedom is a wonderful thing, but, but it can also be a scary thing. And it was scary for these Jewish believers in the first century. It was scary for them to leave all that legalism of the Old Testament behind and to walk into freedom in Christ. Uh, an Arab chief tells a story of a spy who was captured and then sentenced to death by a general in the Persian army. This general had the strange custom of giving condemned criminals a choice between the firing squad and a big black door. As the moment for execution drew near, the spy was brought to the Persian general who asked the question, what will it be, the firing squad or the big black door? The spy hesitated for a long time. It was a difficult decision. He chose the firing squad. Moments later, shots rang out, confirming his execution. The general turned to his aide and said they always prefer the known way to the unknown. It is characteristic of people to be afraid of the undefined yet we gave him a choice. The aide said and asked, what lies beyond the big door? Freedom, replied the general. I've known only a few who are brave enough to take it. So freedom, even in spiritual matters, can, can be a, a scary thing. There's just something about uh, that feels safe, about a defined list of do's and don'ts, but that becomes like a birdcage. It feels safe, but it's like a tyranny that confines us and burdens us. And it's impossible to keep all those do's and don'ts. It terrorizes us because we can never measure up to the Old Testament law. But it, but it also makes us prideful because we always think that we're better than other people, better than anyone else. You know, what we do is we pick the parts of the Old Testament law or we do it today. We pick parts of the Christian life that we are better, better at keeping, that are easier for us to keep and make them the most important thing so we score better than the people around us. So we select what's easier for me to obey, uh, what, what do I like obeying, what am I better at keeping, and, and make that the target and then look down on other people that aren't as good at that thing. It's like shooting an arrow at a wall. And then when it gets stuck in the wall, you go and you paint a target around the arrow and then saying, look, I hit the bullseye and others are not hitting. You condemn others for not hitting the same bullseye. So that in mind, Jesus told this story in Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, who was probably the most respected person in that culture, and the other a tax collector, who was the most despised in that culture. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, 
God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. Maybe he was never tempted to steal, never tempted to commit adultery. So, so he, he paints that, he, he shoots that arrow, and then paints the target around these things. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's the difference between do and done. Every world religion, every world philosophy, uh, except for one, says it's all about what you must do. You chant this chant. You, you follow this path, this journey. You uh, um, do these things, you, and you don't do these other things. Everything, every other world religion, every other philosophy is about do, do what you must do to be right with God. Only one, the gospel of Jesus Christ, says it's not about what you do, but it is about what someone has done for you. Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, is the difference between do and done. And here's the interesting part that really is counterintuitive. It really is interesting, but it's true. We actually are more motivated to do good by the joy of responding to the done then we are motivated by the fear of not doing the do. Let me repeat that. I even confused myself there. <laughs> we actually are more motivated to do good by the joy of responding to the done. In, in response, in gratitude to what Christ has done for us, we, we are motivated to live in such a way and to serve God and others in such a way more, and that's a more powerful motivation than, than, the, than the fear of, well, if I don't do this thing, I'll, I'll get in trouble with God. If I do this thing, of, set of do's, and I avoid this set of don'ts, the other is actually freedom. It's actually more of a powerful motivator than legalism is. Uh, number two, Galatians warns against leaving the true gospel. So the false gospel is do, what you must do to earn your way to heaven, earn your way into God's good favor, what you must do to earn your salvation, uh, the true gospel is done. False gospel, false religion, false philosophy do. True gospel is done. What Christ has done for us. What has already been done by Jesus on the cross for you and for me. So Paul warns about adding to the true gospel, changing the true gospel, or watering down the true gospel. So what these false teachers among the Galatians was, were teaching is that you, you can follow Christ, sure, but you have to add to Jesus keeping the Jew, Jewish law. You've got to add keeping the Jewish law to the gospel of Christ if you want to be saved. And so Paul writes in Galatians 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven 
You know, really, that's basically what a cult is. It takes Christ, the gospel of Christ, and it adds something to it. Either an angel told him to add it to it, or, or some other writer or thinker or, or leader told him to take the gospel of Christ and then add something to it. it it's, it's the Bible. It's Christ plus the writings of so-and-so or something that an angel supposedly shared from heaven. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Strong words, strong words. Number three, Galatians upholds the significance of grace. Chapter two, verse 16. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Hannah Whitehall Smith writes about 10 differences between law and, and grace. Number one, the law says, do this and you will live. Grace says live and then you will do. Okay, difference between do and done. Uh, do this and then you'll finally achieve heaven. You'll, you'll live. Grace says uh, receive the free gift of salvation in Christ and then go out and do everything you can do to spread the gospel. Do everything you can to love other people, serve other people, live in a godly way that pleases God out of gratitude. The law says, pay me what you owe me. Grace says, I freely forgive you all. The law says, make yourself a new heart and spirit. Grace says, a new heart I will give you and a new spirit will I put within you. The law says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Grace says, here is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, which means a payment substitution uh, for our sins. Let me, let me just, could we just go back to number three for, for just a moment? Uh, make yourself a new heart. Grace says, a new heart I'll give you. This is like, imagine that Jesus said, he's coming to your house for lunch after church today. And Jesus is gonna come to your home. So what's your natural response? Kids, everybody, let's race home before Jesus and get the place cleaned up, picked up before Jesus arrives. And, and yet you can just never do it. There's still some dirt. There's still something out of place. And Jesus arrives at the door and he says, look, don't try to clean up before I come in. Invite me into your house the way it is. Invite me into your life the way it is right now. And together with my power, we will clean the house. We will work on the areas of your life that, that need work. Uh, let's go on now to, to number five. It says, the law says the wages of sin is death. Grace says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. The law demands holiness. Grace gives holiness. The law says do. Grace says done. The law makes blessings the result of obedience. If you obey, then you'll be blessed. Grace makes obedience a result of blessings. Because God has blessed us so much, now we want to now we want to obey. Number nine, the law says if, grace says therefore. If, if you do this, then you'll be blessed. 
Grace says, therefore, because God has saved you in Christ, the free gift of salvation in Christ, therefore, live in a certain way. Serve God. Reach others for Christ. And number 10, under the law, salvation was wages. Okay, just gotta earn it. Under grace, salvation is a gift. And then number four, Galatians presents the true function of the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. Chapter three, verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So let's hold it up. There's two pictures here in these verses. The first says that the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, is a prison. The law was our prison, confining us as criminals because we had broken it so many times. We lived behind bars, condemned to death because we were sinners, lawbreakers, rebels, against God's perfect standard of righteousness. The law was a constant reminder of our miserable uh, 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 condition. But then Jesus came and broke us out of jail. Jesus came and broke us out of our prison. Let's go on to the next verse. So the first picture, picture is prison. The second picture is a guardian. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let's hold that there for just a moment. Um, the, the second one after prison, the picture we have here of the Old Testament law was that it was a guardian. Uh, this comes from the Greek word, paidagogos, um, paidagogos. Uh, which means a guardian. Um, it, it, it sometimes is translated as tutor. And in the Greco-Roman world, they had these uh, paedagogoses uh, who were tutors, and, and they, were, they were put in charge of the children to make them to obey. And in antiquity, whenever you see a picture of these uh, shared, it's usually they're holding a, 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 like a whip or a, 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 a cane or a stick to beat the child. They were known for just being harsh, harsh on, on the children that, they were, that were put under their care. And so the law is, is one of these. It's that tutor, it's that guardian, harshly warning us to stay on the straight and narrow, punishing us if we've strayed, and protecting us until we arrived at our divinely intended destination, okay, justification by faith in God's Son. It, it's a guardian over us, but it's a harsh guardian until it delivers us uh, to our destination. Christ came, and we could be justified by faith in God's Son. Now, the Old Testament law is not a test, it's a mirror. It's not a test that if we, if we pass it somehow, if we get enough, a good enough grade, now we go to heaven. But instead, it's a mirror. It, when, when we compare our lives to what we find in the Ten Commandments, in, in the laws of the Old Testament, it's like a mirror, and we look in it and go, oh my goodness, I could never live up to that. I'm such a sinner. And it makes me realize what I need is, is not to clean up my act because I'll never do it. I need a savior. And that was the role of the Old Testament law, to, to drive us to the foot of the cross, to say we need Christ 
and Christ alone. We need a savior. We need somebody that'll forgive us. And then number five, Galatians provides a needed balance between the abuse of liberty and the judgmental nature of legalism. The abuse of liberty, where we just kind of live any way we please, we take, we take advantage of the grace of God and just trample on it and live the way we want, or the cage, the prison of the judgmental nature of, of legalism. Now, don't, down through church history, Christians have gone back and forth between liberty and legalism. The pendulum has gone back and forth. For example, early in our nation's history, the Puritans probably overemphasis on legalism. But today, probably an overemphasis uh, on liberty. You don't even have to go back that far. Even between when I grew up uh, 50 years ago until now, when I grew up, overemphasis on legalism. Today, overemphasis on liberty. How many of you, if you grew up in a Christian home, how many of you grew up in a more legalistic environment than you do, than you do now? I, I bet it's 100% or close to it. I mean, when I was a kid um, growing up in Virginia, we said, you know what? You don't drink, dance, or chew, or go with girls who do. Don't drink, chewing, uh, you know, chew, chewing tobacco, uh, dance or chew. Don't drink, dance or chew, or go with girls who do. I remember a song on the Christian radio called There's an Eye Upon High Watching You. There's an eye upon high watching you. It listed about 20 of the vices of our time. Everything from gambling to smoking to chewing tobacco to, to drinking to dance. And, uh, and then it had, and each line ended with, there's an eye upon high watching you. I only remember one of the verses. I know there were about 20 verses. I only remember one. It went like this. Does the Lord think you're cute in your two-piece bathing suit? There's an eye upon high watching you. And then it went through all of them. So uh, I, I remember I never saw a movie until I was 20 years old. Well, that's not quite true. I could see them if they were rated BG. You say, Glenn, you must mean PG. No, I mean BG for Billy Graham. My dad would help to sponsor Billy Graham movies, which were the first Christian movies out there uh, in our town. And, uh, and I had friends come to Christ through those Billy Graham movies. Uh, but I never saw a regular movie until I was 20 years old. Uh, okay, the pendulum was, was kind of this way towards legalism. But I'll confess to you, I probably go to movies or watch movies on TV today that I probably shouldn't go to or watch. Pendulum has gone the other way towards liberty. Legalism, liberty. Legalism. So Galatians is a great balancer between the two. Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Elizabeth Elliot uh, writes, freedom and discipline have come to be regarded as mutually exclusive, when in fact freedom is not at all the opposite, but the final reward of discipline. It is to be bought with a high price, not merely claimed. The professional skater and the racehorse are free to perform as they do only because they have been subjected to countless hours of grueling work, rigidly prescribed, faithfully carried out. 
Men are free to soar into space because they willingly confine themselves in a tiny capsule designed and produced by highly trained scientists and craftsmen, have meticulously followed instructions and submitted themselves to rules which others defined. Elton Trueblood uh, writes, we have not advanced very far in our own spiritual lives if we've not encountered the basic paradox of freedom that we are most free when we are bound. But not just any way of being bound will suffice. What matters is the character of our binding. The one who would be an athlete but who is unwilling to discipline his body by regular exercise and abstinence is not free to excel on the field or the track. His failure to train rigorously denies him the freedom to run with the desired speed and endurance. Discipline is the price of freedom. And then number six, we all begin at the same place, which puts us all on the same level. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we'll dig deeper into this in a couple of weeks when we, when we come to, to Ephesians. But, but here in Galatians 3, verse 26, it says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God uh, through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And then number seven, Galatians teaches us how to care enough to confront. Uh, the two giants of the early church were Peter and Paul. Peter, the apostle to the Jews, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And in Galatians, they have a they have a conflict with each other. They have a fight with each other. In Galatians, it's truly a remarkable thing. Paul loves Peter enough to confront him, and Peter loves Paul enough to receive his constructive criticism. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Wounds from a friend, confrontation, constructive criticism, pointing out a blind spot from a friend can be trusted. We all have blind spots. So we need to be wounded in order to, to overcome them. I love this uh, particular item. It's as a doctor. Uh, I think it's a true story. He writes, I was performing a complete physical, including the visual acuity test. I placed the patient 20 feet from the chart and began, cover your right eye with your hand. He read the 2020 line perfectly. Now you're left. Again, a flawless read. Now both, I requested. There was silence. He couldn't even read the large E on the top line. I turned and discovered that he had done exactly what I had asked. He was standing there with both his eyes covered. I was laughing too hard to finish the exam. Well, we need each other to point out those times when we're like this and we can't see over here or we're like this and we can't see over there, or we're like this and, and we, need, we can't see anything. Uh, we need to do that for each other, but we need to be careful how we do it. Galatians 6 verse 1, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Uh, this word for restore is from the Greek word uh, katartizo, 
which means to restore. It's, it's the same word that's used to set a broken bone. Um, we're to do that with gentleness and with humility. Well, here's the story in chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas, which is another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's the same group that's causing trouble in Galatia. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, the question is, did Peter receive this constructive criticism? Uh, he must have. Because later on, we see that it what was called the Council of Jerusalem, which was that whole council was the church leaders came together to figure out, do you have to become Jewish before you become Christian? Do you have to follow the Old Testament law in addition to Christ? And at that council, Peter is now supporting Paul that the Gentiles do not have to become Jews before they follow Christ. Uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me, Simon, another name for Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. And then in verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Lord, thank you for the book of Galatians. Uh, thank you so much how it helps us to balance out legalism and liberty. Uh, thank you for the way it just helps us to appreciate the grace of the true gospel, the free gift of salvation in Christ. Thank you so much. Much And thank you how it challenges us that when we do have blind spots to be humble enough to receive constructive criticism like Peter did, but love each other enough to sometimes step up and point out those things, even though it takes courage to do that and boldness to do that, help us to appreciate what Paul did. Love each other enough to confront, but do it with humility and graciousness uh, and, and gentleness and humility enough to receive constructive criticism, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.